0: To episode thirteen twenty eight of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from FanGraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of FanGraphs. Hello, Jeff.
1: Sometimes we say a FanGraphs baseball podcast. Sometimes we say a baseball podcast from FanGraphs. And I don't know which one is more standard because when you say a baseball podcast from FanGraphs, brought to you by our Patreon supporters, it sounds like we have <laughs> multiple sponsors. We have one sponsor. Yeah. It's Patreon. We're not FanGraphs doesn't FanGraphs doesn't put us up. We pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, and also by Patreon, mostly Patreon. Yeah, Fangraphs doesn't pay me,
0: Fangraphs pays you. So we're we're sort of presented by both, I suppose, in a way, just trying to keep things interesting. So today we have two guest segments, two interviews, and we're going way back in history. This is going to be an old-timey baseball episode because nothing is happening in new-timey baseball. So we're just doing some time travel today. So later in the episode we will be talking to a longtime listener as well as the commissioner of a vintage baseball league in southern california so you've all seen the the conan o'brien video of people who are playing using vintage uniforms and vintage rules this is one of those it's a new league in southern california playing under 1886 rules and we will talk about why and how that's different but before that I will be talking to author Chris Ends. Now, you've been traveling for the past couple of days, which is why we have not put out a podcast yet this week. And unfortunately, you were not able to join me for that interview, which I am sad about because I think we were both excited about. This is something that came across my radar in the Facebook group, courtesy of listener Matthew, who posted an article about this from some time ago. We are going to be talking about a convict team made up of players on death row in Wyoming in 1911 who essentially were playing for their lives. And Chris Ens has written two books about this team. And I don't know what could be more in the Effectively Wild wheelhouse than a team that is playing in order to keep itself alive because we talk all the time about how baseball is a distraction from death. We have even discussed a study that suggests that reminding oneself of one's mortality— may improve one's performance. So this is the ultimate distraction i guess except it's not really a distraction because you're constantly afraid for your life which perhaps enhances your performance so no wonder this team was successful
1: so much talk right now about how the league should re-incentivize or try to re-incentivize competition in winning and i can think of one way that's kind of off the board (laughs) (laughs) but maybe if you have a team that doesn't win mm, 70 games well you, you can you can Figure out the rest. So I want to ask you a question. Let's say so. Last take the Yankees. Whatever last year's Yankees won 100 games, right? And this year they should win 95 100 games again, playing under ordinary conditions. Let's say the Yankees and only the Yankees were told, if you don't, I don't know, if you don't win X number of games, you will all die. How (laughs) how many more games? In the regular seasons, do you think, if any, do you think the—or maybe fewer, maybe your answer is fewer. How many more games do you think the Yankees would win if they played under under potential penalty of death?
0: Yeah, it's hard to know which way it goes. I, I brought this up with Chris. It's hard to know what the player's mindset was in this situation. A, it is literally life or death, and so you can't imagine a greater motivation to perform well than being put to death if you perform poorly. On the other hand, that would only add to the anxiety of playing Major League Baseball, knowing that if you did something wrong, you would suffer the ultimate penalty for it. I'm going to guess that it would enhance your performance. I I guess you there are some people who might just be reduced to quivering lumps and would be unable to perform because of the extreme pressure, but I'm going to guess that when it comes right down to it, your survival instinct would come in and you would throw your fastballs a little bit harder and you would have a laser-like focus in everything you do so I don't know whether you'd be able to sustain that over a 162 game schedule like I could see if it were one game it's like you have to win this game or you die then maybe you get that adrenaline rush that that boosts you but over the course of a 6-7 month season would you actually keep getting that boost or would you just get totally drained and exhausted I don't know I it guess you <laughs> Play through nagging injuries I think would probably be one effect So we'd have fewer DL days And uh, I, I guess you'd have enhanced performance But yeah I'm going to guess it just would Sap you so much over the long run That they wouldn't actually win that much more
1: It would be a great test of human adaptability Because we can kind of get used to everything But can we get used to playing under penalty of death Because if you can get used to that Then I mean there's there's no reason to ever be Knocked off keel by by anything Anything in the world Yeah So I don't know. Baseball
0: meets the running man in Hunger Games. It'd be good for ratings, I guess, but. Bad for everything else it seems like baseball might be the sport where you wouldn't get as big a boost from this, not just because of the length of the season and the number of games, but it's not a contact sport it's it's not so much a physical sport like one would think i mean in football it seems like people are already basically playing <laughs> with this hanging over their heads because they know they are severely hurting themselves and damaging themselves and possibly leading to early deaths in many cases and so I, I would think in that kind of case where you're just like running into people, maybe that would help more than in a, a non contact sport like baseball. This feels very Mesoamerican ballgame esque. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we talk a lot about how. Baseball is screwed up these days, and the labor situation is a problem. We're probably about to talk about that for a few minutes more. At least that is a lot better than it was in 1911 or 1886. At least we don't have the reserve clause, and at least we don't have players' playing on pain of death so look on the bright side everyone
1: players do not die if they lose captives were often shown in maya art and it is assumed that these captives were sacrificed after losing a rigged ritual ball game rather than nearly nude and sometimes battered captives however the ball courts at el tajin and chichen itza show the sacrifice of practiced ball players perhaps the captain of a team Decapitation is particularly associated with the ball game. Severed heads are featured in much late classic ball game art and appear repeatedly in the Popol Vuh. There has even been speculation that the heads and skulls were used as balls. So, I guess history repeats, and if we want to understand how players would do under penalty of death, we need to go back and research ancient Central American cultures who were playing the, the ritual ball game and see if they did better when they knew where they were going to be sacrificed.
0: This podcast gets pretty strange in the offseason when we get desperate for things to talk about. It's, it's funny. We're all, like, frustrated at baseball for not entertaining us, but... Should baseball be something that entertains us 24-7 year-round? I don't know. Maybe we're expecting too much of baseball. Like, this is the off season. It's the depths of the off season. It would be okay if, if baseball is just boring for a while, right? I don't know. There are so many entertainment options out there. Maybe it's okay if, if baseball recedes for a while, but not so okay when you host a baseball podcast and you have to talk about baseball one way or another. So while you have been traveling, there have been some very minor moves that— no. Oh, we're not talking we need about to spend those. spend no, time, just skip on. Yeah.
1: skip right by this part. Ignore it. People <laughs> yeah. talk about <laughs>
0: Greg Holland, Sean Kelly, Whit Merrifield, Freddie Galvis. Sorry, guys. <laughs> so just no. We, just it doesn't.
1: Yeah. So many people will talk about the baseball offseason and say, "Well, you know the in basketball the free agency like everyone signs in a day or like hockey or right. football they all move so much faster." It, but is that better? Because then yeah. it's done, and then what's happening right. all offseason long? Why would you want well, that?
0: Yeah, there's a lot of off-the-field drama in the NBA, which is pretty engaging. Lots of stuff happening on Twitter and things that end up in NBA desktop at the ringer that all is really exciting and and entertaining and baseball doesn't have as much of that for better or for worse so what has been consuming baseball over the past few days is Bryce Harper continuing not to sign with anyone but seeming perpetually to be on the point of signing so it's become a meme now with various random Phillies fans tweeting that they have inside info that Bryce Harper is about to sign. There was a, a scare where MLB The Show is going to be making an announcement. And of course, Harper is the cover boy for that game. So people were thinking maybe the video game will announce where Bryce Harper is going. That didn't happen. None of these rumors about my best friend's cousin's caterer heard this and that. And he's signing with the Phillies any day now. None of that has come to fruition as we speak presumably he will sign somewhere potentially with the Phillies sometime soon but the rumors have just
1: gotten out of control and i guess it's one way to entertain yourself is Bryce i, I think didn't we talk some time ago about how Tim Tebow might be the most popular well known baseball player is yeah. Bryce Harper among actual good baseball players who aren't Tim Tebow who sucks is Bryce Harper the most well known baseball player in America, do you think? What's the what's the what is it? Q score? Yeah. I would think so. I I remember being surprised that
0: like Mike Trout, for all we talk about how he is not nearly as well known as he should be, Seems like just in terms of like social media presence, like I don't know if this is a great reliable indicator of how well known or popular a player is, but Bryce Harper has only nine hundred eighty-seven thousand Twitter followers. Mike Trout has two and a half million Twitter followers, and I don't know why he's not tweeting anything particularly interesting other than just unusual punctuation. I mean, by all means, follow Mike Trout, but. That doesn't really jibe with what we tend to hear about how Bryce Harper is this celebrity with marquee value and Mike Trout is not. So I don't know. It, it seems like Harper is the best known, but I don't have any objective metric saying so.
1: Yeah. So anyway, yeah, the the rumors are out of control. I know that everybody thought the Phillies were going to sign Harper on, on Tuesday based on, I don't know, some kind of weird rumors coming out of Las Vegas that like – yeah, prop bets too. had been removed from a board. I don't know yeah. how it all works. But I mean, at, at some point, if you just keep predicting that Bryce Harper is going to sign somewhere, he's going to sign somewhere because there's only so many right. days left until the season begins. And you know, presumably Scott Boris is not going to allow Bryce Harper to like sit out the start of the season waiting for $350 million. And so if you are someone who who lives for fleeting Twitter attention, and you just tweet... Every day, some new rumor about why Bryce Harper is going to sign with the Phillies. Well, guess what? Probably the most likely situation is that Bryce Harper is going to sign with the Phillies for lack of (laughs) other teams who seem to be in the mix. No idea what the Nationals are doing. So eventually, it uh, stands a pretty good chance of coming true. So maybe just... Set up like, let's see, what is it today, January thirtieth? So like fifty-five or sixty burner accounts and just every day, from a new one. Tweet out Bryce Harper signing with the Phillies today, and then eventually you're going to get your 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 ephemeral social media fame, and then you'll mm-hmm. you'll be fulfilled. You will have lived out your purpose. Yeah.
0: By the way, the Instagram gap between Trout and Harper is much smaller. I don't know why, but Trout has one point five million followers on Instagram, and Harper has one point four. But either way, Trout is in the lead. Somewhat surprising, but are you? Yeah. Are you on Instagram? I am not on Instagram. I don't know what I would put on there. I don't yeah. <laughs> I don't have any pictures that are good you have good pictures you go outside and take nice landscapes so you should be on instagram no who cares why would anyone (laughs) know nobody has good things to put on instagram (laughs) well this has been kind of consuming the news cycle or the the non-news cycle over the past few days and i get it like if you're a phillies fan i understand why you are excited by the prospect of bryce harper playing for your team there's not much else going on in baseball right now I just find that I don't know whether it is getting a little bit older or whether it's the glut of other entertainment options, but I just find that I don't look forward to things anymore. (laughs) And I don't mean that I don't enjoy things or that I, I don't still find joy in life. I do. But I just, I don't anticipate things anymore. I don't know if it's just me or if it's like once you get to a certain age or, or what, but like I'm always entertained for one thing. Like there's never any shortage of things to do or play or watch. And so. I find myself thinking of everything in this abstract way, like, oh, yeah, that movie will probably be good. I'm sure I'll enjoy that movie, but I'm not, like, counting down the days till, I don't know, even, like, you know, the next Star Wars movie or or Game of Thrones or or The Last of Us 2 or, like, things that I'm really looking forward to that I know I will like a lot. I don't really think of them all that often and I think it's just because there's so much else out there which is kind of a problem for baseball and other sports is that you know there's like 500 scripted shows on streaming television there are movies coming out constantly there are more games than anyone could possibly play and this really kind of was driven home for me when I basically took a few months off from culture to finish the book and just in those few months I missed so many things that right now there's such a backlog of like things that my wife and I want to watch or play that basically we could just stop creating things for the rest of the year and I would never catch up, even aside from baseball coming back. So I don't know if that's it, but that's kind of how I'm thinking of Harper and Machado. It's like they'll sign somewhere and then the season will start. But I don't know. I'm not refreshing MLB trade rumors hourly other than the fact that when they do finally sign, we'll have to write something about it.
1: Yeah, I'm also not joyless, but I similarly don't anticipate (laughs) things. I have anticipated things before. Of course, I've been much, much younger. But at this point, Mm -hmm. I'd feel very similar. And if anything, like if you have a day where maybe – if I have a day where I I write less than I wanted to or maybe I don't even get anything published at all, I can just justify it at the end by saying, well, you know what? I reduced the decision fatigue of everybody else who's on the internet who might have read this article that I might have written. Now I've made it easier to consume all that you want to consume because, I mean, how often – do you just like I don't know I don't know if you when you wake up or if you spend a few hours away from Twitter then you maybe I like to go th- because I follow so few people I like to go back and and just kind of catch up on my entire feed and then mm-hmm. almost without this isn't even necessarily entertainment but almost without fail I'll just have opened up nine or ten links of things that I'm like supposed to read and then yeah. I'm so consumed by just trying to keep up and and do the things I'm supposed to do and read the things I think I'm supposed to read on a daily basis that you, you don't really have time. To think longer term and like think about the future, like uh, I maybe I'm <laughs> probably not supposed to say this to the world, but getting married in a few months and like it's always yeah. in the back of my mind, but it probably should be more pressing in the back of my mind that it's coming up. Like, a, the greatest achievement of my life is, like, just around the bend. And all I can think about is, like, well, let's see. Is Cattell Marte going to make it as a center fielder in Arizona? Or, like, Greg Holland get better in September? Is it, I just these, – these things that are so pressing in the day-to-day, just so much time spent treading water and so little time to think about, like, oh, yeah, what's coming up? So mm-hmm. we should all – Take a break and leave the internet. I guess is where this is coming down to. Uh, yeah. Maybe, maybe society yeah. in a hundred years won't have the internet anymore. We'll go back. This could, <laughs> yeah, you know and this this dovetails well into the uh, the vintage theme of this podcast. Maybe in yeah. some ways, not many ways, but in some ways, life was better when it was simpler. Perhaps I don't know. I there were times when I was bored
0: though when I was younger and now I'm never bored because there's just always something I want to read or play or watch or whatever like I remember it one of my very first jobs it was like you know I'd listen to a certain radio show in the middle of the day it was uh, Max Kellerman who used to do a really good radio show in New York before he started doing first take and he did it with Brian Kenny for a while I, I really liked that show and so it would be on for a few hours in midday and before that show I would just Look forward to that show. And then after that show, I'd be like, well, I have no way to entertain myself now. I was doing a a boring, tedious data entry job. And that was pre podcast. It was just like, well, I guess I could listen to music or there was just, you know, entertainment would cease. And then you would look forward to it resuming at some point, which now you really never have to face that sort of situation. So I definitely had times in my youth when I literally counted down the days to things and now I just don't really. I still look forward to like personal things, like I'm looking forward to the book coming out, for instance, and sometimes I look forward to a, an article that I'm enjoying working on that I think other people will enjoy. I look forward to that being public or or personal milestones and gatherings, like a, a wedding. I don't know if I even looked forward to my wedding <laughs> that much. It, it was a great day, don't get me wrong, but it, it didn't really change anything about my life in a material way. I was already living with the woman who would be my wife, and our lives didn't really change all that much after the wedding, so it was just kind of a very nice day where we got to see everyone, and then it was over, and uh, I didn't even have to do that much of the planning, or that would have made me look forward to it probably being over. But anyway, that is a a meditation on anticipation, and that's kind of how I feel about baseball news and rumors these days. Partially, it's because it's a job and we cover these things in a professional way and we're not fans of any one team, at least not in the way that we used to be. And so we're not really, you know, roster baiting and looking at what our team's opening day lineup is going to be. It's just like, well, when news happens, we will cover it and talk about it.
1: And I mean, we, we've we had all offseason to think about Bryce Harper and Manny Machado as free agents. We've had longer right. than the offseason to think about that. And still, whenever... Whenever it happens, I'm going to be surprised. And I have no plan. Like to write, I don't have like – I've yeah. had months to come up with some like clever premise <laughs> or intro to like right. Bryce Harper signed. It. And no, I, I got nothing. So when it happens, yeah. I'll be like, crap. It's because it's probably going to happen at like 10 p.m. Pacific mm-hmm. time. And I'll be like, all right, well, now I have to go write 2,000 words on Bryce Harper, which, by the way, it's not going to be that interesting of an article because it's going to say, here's Bryce right. Harper. He's on this team now. He's good and he's expensive. That's going to be mm-hmm. – that's going to be it. You've read yeah. – if anything, when you when you have players like this who are out there longer, and not even just free agents, but also someone like JT Realmuto, you do, even if you're not sitting and anticipating it, maybe this is now talking, talking from the writer perspective, even if you're not sitting back and anticipating when they're going to sign, you still think about them because they're in the news and you see the rumors. And at least at, at Fangrefs, we've written in exhaustive detail about Harper, about Machado, about Realmuto, such that we've kind of written and published almost all of the necessary content before anything ever happens. So right. when they sign, what's new will be the team and the terms, but that'll yeah. be it. Like, we've already talked yeah. about Bryce Harper's defense or Manny Pachano's patience or right. JT Realmuto's home road split, whatever. So... Mm-hmm. You were kind of laying out the Bryce Harper contract article in several pieces over the course of an entire offseason before the contract is ever
0: signed. Right. And if anything is interesting about the signing, it will probably be the amount of money that they received. And if that amount is lower than what we expected coming into the winter or prior to the winter, that will touch off another round of articles about how free agency is broken and we're heading for a strike and all of that. and even that conversation, as important as it is, feels like something where we are already repeating ourselves. This is almost one reason why we kind of just wanted to do something completely different today and go off the beaten path and do a, an old timey baseball episode is that we just did a, a few episodes about finances and salaries and payrolls and you know whether we're heading for a strike. And we will continue to talk about that because it's important and it's going to be one of the defining issues of the sport over the next few years. But nothing is happening except for more news that kind of confirms that there's a problem and we can't actually change this system in any material way, it seems like, for almost three more years. So things will continue to, to heat up. And in that vein, Ken Rosenthal just wrote about the escalating tensions between the Union and the League. There has been some tweeting by players, especially it seems like in the wake of the Henry Mejia signing, Henry Mejia signed a minor league deal with the Red Sox. This is, of course, the reliever who has tested positive and been banned for PED use three times, and and that triggered a lifetime ban, which has now been forgiven, and he is back in baseball. But some players are not happy about that either because they don't like when players use PEDs and they are willing to say so. So, or they're just still unsigned themselves And they're thinking how did this guy get signed When I'm still unsigned Of course it is a, a minor league deal So it's not like he got a ton of money
1: Yeah I don't know how I mean he was he was the first player banned for life Under the new steroid policy yeah. Is that correct so- I believe so and even if he's not, he's, 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 he would be among them. Certainly one of the first people banned for life from baseball just across the board. Not the first, but it's not that long of a list. And it takes the teeth out of the policy when you overturn it and allow him to come back into baseball. But anyway, because like you said, I've been traveling. I haven't caught up on the player tweets. But I did want to bring up something from that same Rosenthal article. Because this is an article that's, uh, that's titled, Inside the Frayed Relations that Could Have MLB Owners and Players, quote, Walking Off a Cliff Together, end quote. And there is something in that article that touches on something that you wrote about, I believe it was last year, that when I saw it, I kind of stopped and thought, oh, so what's the problem? So I'm going to read this. I'm going to read this out loud. You maybe already know what I'm going to read out loud. The players would be rightly alarmed if they were receiving a diminished percentage of industry revenue, a perception that exists in some quarters, but according to baseball is incorrect. Since 2007, players have received between 53 and 57% of revenue annually, including 54.8% in 2018 those figures which include amateur signing bonuses and minor league salaries are audited and given to the union they are not in dispute so what then isn't that the point isn't that i mean i know things are moving slower and teams are treating free agency differently but if the union isn't disputing that they're getting basically the same cut as they've mm-hmm. gotten for the past 11 12 years yeah isn't it fine <laughs> Right. When I wrote that article, I, I was conflicted about
0: writing it because I, I didn't want to say something inaccurate that would hurt the perception of the players or, or something or, or make it look like I was just passing along the, the major league line. And the reason I wrote it is that because I spoke to the union too, and they said, yeah, we uh, agree with these figures. We we uh, co-signed these, these facts essentially. And that was why I went ahead with it. And that sort of surprised me Now, I don't know whether part of it is that the union doesn't want to make it look like they've been doing a bad job. And so maybe the leadership isn't willing to say, yeah, boy, we've lost a lot of ground on our watch here. But I think maybe larger than that, it's that you can get a little creative with your accounting about how you define revenues and what exactly is included in that bucket. I mean, what is baseball revenue? Is it only revenue that comes from attendance or is it merchandise sales or is it local and national broadcast deals or is it, you know, the BAM tech payoff that the owners got for just MLB starting that spin off, MLB Advanced Media, and, and having this streaming technology, which is not included in those figures, I believe. But you could argue, well, it's separate, it's technology, it's something. MLB built. On the other hand, they built it basically on the backs of the players providing entertainment. There would have been nothing to stream if not for the actual baseball itself. So some of that is in contention. So I guess it's partly that, that there has been this growth of all of this revenue that traditionally was not included in that accounting. And it seems like the players are being cut out of that. You could argue that they don't deserve a cut of that, but I think you could also very convincingly argue that they do and are not getting it. So, I guess it's that. But you're right; the figures definitely muddy the waters to a certain extent.
1: And I understand like multi-year contracts are, are harder to come across, like three or four-year deals, unless you're like an eighth-inning relief pitcher now are harder to get on the free agent market. And so that introduces more uncertainty. But like even even if you have a multi-year contract that you sign, I know you're guaranteed that money, but it's not like you're guaranteed to stay in the same place. Players are traded all the time or you can be dumped or waived or whatever. So you can sign a four-year contract. It doesn't mean you're going to like play with the Diamondbacks for all four years. It's just you get your guaranteed money. If you have shorter contracts, then in theory what that would do is just redistribute free agency money more frequently to players who are better and more deserving of the money. Now, what has happened, and this is not a new observation, is that you have sort of this uh, a more bifurcated baseball population where you have the really highly paid players and then you have the the low-paid young players, arbitration players, and then you have this declining middle class. But While that reflects the decline of the middle class in broader American society, the middle class in baseball is also the upper class of American society, so it's not as if it's the same sort of crisis that we are seeing play out in in the country. Like Again, Mm -hmm. not to go back to... The Neil Walkers are like the Nick Markakis's, but yeah, Nick Markakis might suffer now because he signed for six million dollars instead of maybe he would have gotten twenty million dollars in free agency a few years ago. Or in his case, what did he get? Forty-four million dollars in free agency last time around. But how much of a crisis is it if Nick Markakis is only is down a few million dollars from where he would have been before? I it's it gets complicated. But when I saw that paragraph. In the Rosenthal article, I thought, wait, there's how many thousands more words in this article? Because it seems like <laughs> you kind of just made the main point.
0: Right, yeah. it It is hard to get to the bottom of all of this. I mean, there's also the facts that say that the average player's salary – Decreased and spending on Free agents has stagnated Or or decreased and at the same time MLB revenue is Setting a new record every single year Which it seems like Would be hard for both of those things to be true If players are not getting paid more And yet teams are making more Then how can players be making the Same cut of the overall revenue Unless other charges That are included in that are Increasing so I don't know. I kind of think that maybe in some ways things are not quite as dire as they've made out to be, but in other ways maybe that distorts the actual picture of the information. Anyway, we have ended up talking about baseball economics (laughs) in yet another episode and probably will continue to, to do so. And by the way, one last note about Mejia, as I know some people have pointed out that, of course, there are problems with supplements in the Dominican particularly, so you will see... There are some tainted supplements that people are more likely to take there. Now, maybe they should know that. Maybe they should be more careful, but maybe they don't have a choice and they have to take what they can get. And- you know, if you get caught three times, you're probably doing something that you shouldn't be doing and and should have learned from. But I think that was maybe a a factor in his being reinstated was that one of the positive tests, there was some doubt about whether one of the substances had been tainted without his knowledge, something like that. I, I think there was some extenuating circumstance. So I wanted to point that out.
1: Well, I guess it's time to take this podcast back to the olden days when there were no finances in baseball. Yes,
0: right. Uh, Back to a a simpler time when... To be honest, just about everything was worse than it is right now. But in retrospect, with the uh, rose-colored glasses of nostalgia, things seem simpler and better, even though they weren't. So we will take a quick break, and then I will be back to talk to Chris Ens about a team that was playing for its life. And then you will rejoin me, and we will talk about the modern vintage baseball league.
2: People, if I ever can get up off of this old heart-killing flow. Lord, I'll never get out this no
0: so I am joined now by Chris Enns, a best-selling writer and screenwriter who has authored dozens of books about the Old West, including two books about the Wyoming State Penitentiary All-Stars of 1911. Playing for Time, which came out in 2004, and The Death Row All-Stars, which she wrote a decade later with her frequent collaborator, the producer Howard Kassanjian. Chris, thank you very much for joining me.
3: Thank you very much, Ben. I'm excited to be a part of the broadcast. Thank you.
0: So, you have written extensively, though not exclusively, about the Old West. You've focused on some of the most famous personalities of that time. You've also written about women of the Old West who played prominent and long overlooked roles. But what led you to the story of the Death Row All Stars and what made you want to write about it not once but twice?
3: Well, I was in Roland, Wyoming, doing some research on women who had been placed in that prison there in the town. And, um, while I was there doing research, I happened onto some notebooks and a picture of these baseball players in prison uniforms, all of them surrounding this, this little boy who looked maybe three or four years old, and he was the bat boy, and, and I was wondering who that little boy was, and who would let their child be photographed with these men in these situations. <laughs> right. And so that led me to want to know more about it. And so then I started poking into that particular baseball team, which uh, was made up of, of all death row inmates. And as long as they played and won, they got stays of execution. Mm-hmm. And I wrote about the book at the beginning called Playing for Time. Mm-hmm. And the company didn't want to... um After the book was done, they didn't want to um, go any further with the title, and so I went to the publishing house that I've been working with for a number of years, which is Two Dot, Roman and Littlefield, and um, they said, sure, let's do another book about that. So I did uh, another book about the Death Row All-Stars, which is what the book is called, and did much more extensive research into the team, into the prison itself, and really did work on... Making sure that I had proper in notes and everything could be backed up, so nobody would come and say that didn't happen mm. Mm-hmm.
0: And what sort of sources were you generally working with? I, I would imagine this was covered by newspapers at the time, as you document, but you would think that it wouldn't be that rich a source of information, a, a penitentiary team. So I'm sure you had to do some digging.
3: You had to go on a real deep dive for it. I did go through newspapers. I did go through the other what the other inmates, what they had written about, tracked different families down, spent a great deal of time working on the story of the most valuable player on the team who was a gentleman by the name of Joseph Singh Mm -hmm. and Joseph Singh, his family came from, from uh, Europe and moved to uh, the Pennsylvania area. And so I just tracked, started with his story really because he was the most valuable player and tracked his family all the way back to the Pennsylvania, actually all the way back to Germany, to be honest with you, that's how far back I went Mm. and where I went to get the story on this player and on this team. So spent a lot of time diving into the warden's life. And the warden was best friends with the captain of the baseball team, who was also an inmate at the prison. And that gentleman's name was George Sabin, And Sabin had been arrested in Wyoming for killing uh, sheep herders mm-hmm. and recognized in the territory there of Wyoming as a hero even though it's illegal to, to murder people, but sheep herders just had a different feel at that time than than, than people that, ha- that raised cattle in that area. So although he went to prison for that, he was still held somewhat of a hero, and he stood up for the warden at the warden's wedding. And so, I, I mean, I started, I'm also a private detective, so I started going through these stories to find out the connection and, and what was really going on Which then led to the whole information about the betting on the team and how George Sabin was the bookie. Mm -hmm. He could, he could come and go from the prison whenever he wanted to. He was the bookie. He was the warden's best friend. So that's exactly what he would do. A guard would take him into town and he would take the bets.
0: Well, I never realized that sheep herders were so unpopular, but maybe that's a different book <laughs> so
3: well, yeah that was that was back in a time where there was a there was a great deal of contention between sheep herders and cattle ranchers in the state of Wyoming. I mean, nobody wanted sheep herders there, hmm. so um it felt as though it ruined the land for the cattle. I so there there was that animosity, although, I, I mean, I, it's ludicrous, of course. It's ludicrous that Sabin could have killed the number of sheep herders that he did, and no one recognized that as a crime, except the...
0: The, the courts, so. Yeah, right. Well, broadly speaking, can you tell us anything about the role and popularity of baseball in the Old West? I mean, this is 1911, but maybe even earlier than that. Of course, there were no major league teams west of St. Louis until 1958, but there was baseball. You just rarely see it depicted in movies or shows or games set in that period and, and that place. I'm wondering whether it was something that made its way west along with the railroads as the frontier was settled. I mean, who was playing baseball? How widespread was it?
3: Well, baseball was an incredibly popular sport in the West. You don't hear much about it, but, I mean, it was even played by the the Native Americans there. I mean, they got hold of gloves and balls, and um, it wasn't uncommon for them to be throwing a, a ball back and forth in the late 1880s, early 1890s, so... You know, it was something that, that people knew of. It was a very popular sport in, in the West. There wasn't a whole lot of sports anyway in the West. But what there was, was always baseball. And certainly with the, with this particular baseball team, this prison baseball team, who was, they were exceptionally good. They played other teams there in town. Who wanted to challenge this incredible baseball team. And so you, you had the teams in, had the teams in Rollins and in Wyoming as a whole, different, different teams that would go and, and play other, and let's just say triple, triple A ball teams. I mean, that's, that's the closest I could come to. Not, nothing major league in the, in the Old West, but certainly at what would be online with triple A ball teams today in the Old West. Very good teams that, were interested in in playing this phenomenal team called the Death Row All-Stars they had a reputation
0: yeah and this was fairly early in the period in which prisons actually made an effort to rehabilitate prisoners and, and have them you know entertain themselves as opposed to just pure punishment. And as you mentioned, the warden of the Wyoming state penitentiary, Felix Alston, who took over just before this team was formed, he was the one who sort of transitioned to a more humane model, and sports was part of that. So it's not uncommon now to see prison baseball teams, for instance. But back then, that was still a fairly recent phenomenon. It sounds like
3: well, it, it very much was, and I mean, I I don't want to even say that that Felix's the warden's motivation for this was completely altruistic. I do mention in the book that he wanted there to be exercise, but I do think that there was a, a motivation behind that. You <laughs> know. I think that he saw how popular the game was in town, and I think that there was there was uh, some larceny in the warden. As well, we know there was some larceny in the warden. Mm-hmm. So I do think that he saw his best friend George be the the captain of the team. So I think that because, because he made those kind of moves. I believe early on that they had a plan, even though I have nothing to back that up. That's just my gut. I believe early on that was their plan.
0: And can you explain what we know about how the team came together, how it was formed, You know who, how it was decided, who would be on it, and, and how it became as big of a, a story as it did?
3: Well, I think that what they did was they recruited from within the prison those men that they felt had this aptitude for baseball and had a great interest in it men that stayed out of trouble for the most part with with, of course with the exception of George Saban but men that stayed out of trouble within the system itself were the and showed an aptitude for baseball were the ones that were recruited to play you had Joseph Singh who I said was the most valuable player who had an amazing uh, ability with medicine that had had things been different for him, I think could have had a bright future in that in the medical profession. Uh, I think he could have had a bright future in baseball too had things been different, and certainly seeing him his his background is is one which he played baseball when he was a kid too so but I mean I, from within the prison itself, those mm-hmm. who were were the best the, the people within the system who behaved themselves and also showed an aptitude for playing baseball, heavy hitters. I mean, the book includes pictures of the grounds themselves. And it wasn't like, I mean, i am I'm sure they did hit some balls outside of the prison wall. But, I mean, it's amazing how <laughs> if you see the pictures of the prison, it, it was a very stark atmosphere. Yeah.
0: And this was an integrated team, which is maybe not surprising given the way it was formed. But this was obviously decades before Major League Baseball became integrated. And so that's somewhat notable. But as you mentioned, the team was known for how it comported itself on the field, which was supposed to be sort of gentlemanly. But obviously, these were not gentlemen in their prior lives. These were murderers and rapists and thieves. I mean, can you give some idea? You mentioned George Sabin's crimes, but why were other members of the team in the prison at that time?
3: You had rapists that were in there. You had people who had stolen money from different post. I don't. They're not. They, they weren't known as the postal department, but from mail trains, <laughs> they they were stealing from trains themselves. I mean, these were people that were involved in. in a, many nefarious activities, from multiple murders to rape, and everything in between you can think of. And it it was interesting that the decision was made early on that this particular prison would be in Rollins, Wyoming, because Wyoming was noted for uh, being very strict with anybody who broke the law. There was a gentleman there in the town by the name of uh, George Parrott, George Big Nose Parrott, and George had stolen some money and was caught. And when he was caught, he was executed for his crime. And then they skinned him, used his skin to make sho- to make some shoes, and then put those shoes in the window of the barber shop, right. which was a statement. This is not where you want to be to perpetrate a crime, because these are the kinds of things that are going to happen to you. So, I mean, I think that the men who were already incarcerated at the prison there in Rollins were quite aware, the Crossbar Hotel, they called it, were quite aware that this is a very strict place to be. That's why it it made it, it was so amazing to know this is how they treated inmates, but that you had George Sabin, who was the captain of the team who was a murderer as i said was able to come and go whenever he pleased mm-hmm. from the and ultimately escapes the prison and you never hear from him again
0: yeah and the little blonde boy you mentioned in the middle of the photographs of the team, that yeah. was Felix Austin Junior, the warden's son. do so.
3: figure that. That's the warden's son. <laughs> Evidently, that's how you could be
4: <laughs> right. That's how you
3: could be so trusting with this little bat boy. Right. You can be tr- so trusting with all these people around this little bat boy. It's the it's the warden's son.
4: Yeah.
0: Evidently, he believes that the players were reformed enough to, to trust his son around them. But
3: it's, it's staggering to me. I mean, I, I think it's also amazing when you get a mental image of these ballplayers being shackled and handcuffed and being transported to places outside the prison to play and, you know, being elevated from being these hardened criminals to local heroes you had children walking up to one of their autographs. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, and you think, okay, well, gosh, there's a great deal of crime in, in sports today. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we haven't really, well, people are seeking the autograph of somebody that is a criminal within yeah. this, the arena of sporting events. So we haven't really changed that much. But I mean, it's, it, it to me, it's just this image of these ball players. Being shackled and handcuffed, waiting for the team, waiting for the games to start and, and children asking them for their autographs and not recognizing for a minute. Wait a second. This guy, he kill, he shot sheep herders and then set them on fire. You know? <laughs> <laughs> no thought of that going on. It's just like, gosh, this guy's an incredible first baseman. Yeah. I want to get his autograph.
4: Yeah,
0: if you're good at sports it it causes people to overlook a lot of sins <laughs> but
3: right I, right I,
0: I wonder I mean what do we know exactly about what the players were told it's difficult to say if something was not written down and and this probably wouldn't have been at least by the warden but how explicit was it that hey if you win you live
3: I think it was it was pretty obvious when you started seeing ball players disappear who had not performed at their best at the last game. Mm. I think you don't need to tell somebody this is what's going to happen. You know, Bob pitched a bad a bad game the last time out. Bob is no no longer with us, mm. and I don't mean no longer with us on the team. Right. I mean Bob is gone. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Bob has been put down. Yeah, it is in your best interest. And you know, George Saban was a was a braggart, and um, he was not shy about telling people he's also the captain of the team. He wasn't shy about letting, no, this could, this is what could happen to you. Don't make me have that decision made because I, I am very well connected here. So, uh, I mean, I think there are things that you can do without explicitly saying, if you don't play well this game, you're going to die. Mm-hmm. Right. That didn't need to be said.
0: <laughs> yeah. Do we know anything? Did anything survive about how the players felt in this atmosphere? I mean, on the one hand, if you're playing to save your life – that is quite a strong motivation. On the other hand, you would think it would be difficult to focus and execute on the field when you're worried about being executed off the field.
3: I think some of them believed they had nothing to lose. You were going to be put to death anyway. Mm-hmm. You might as well go out playing a game that you absolutely loved. And that was something that these men, when they were on the field, they were elevated and way beyond the walls of that prison. It was something that they were playing for their lives, of course, but they were good at it. They were very good at the, at the game. So it wasn't hard for them to be at their best. They loved baseball. And I can't say that there wasn't some stress, but maybe that particular motivation, as it were, mm-hmm. helped you to play better. And you wanted to make, and, and I think to some degree, especially in, in, in Joseph Sang's part, you wanted your other teammates to do well because you, you were in the business of saving their lives too.
0: Right. Huh.
3: So I, I think all the way around, it was a camaraderie and a, and a, and a field of battle, as it were. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's in everybody's best interest that we win this game.
0: And the team was fairly short lived in more ways than one. I guess that's a, a grim way to put it. But right. can can you talk a little bit about who the competition was and how this team fared against it?
3: Well, there was a plumbing company there in town that they played against consistently, and they were very good. And 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 it was just a matter of people in town finding out that there was all of this betting going on. I mean, that's really what became the demise of this team. And it was the gentleman who, in the book, it's a lot about the history of the prison itself and how the prison was run by Otto Graham, who was the head of the broom manufacturing company there, who gets ousted by the warden. And there's a great deal of animosity there. So how the baseball team, the betting and everything is found out, comes through Otto Graham, and he couldn't wait to let people know that this is going on. He was hoping it would be the demise of the warden. It doesn't turn out to be the not demise of the warden. The little guys get put down first, because the minute this particular event was unfolded or was made known, then they had to start saying, oh, that really, we aren't betting on the team. That's not what's happening. And, and to prove it, we'll make sure that the first one that goes is our most valuable player. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what happens to Singh. The book is also, it's about the team, but the book is in large part about the prison, how it all came about, that you had the perfect setting for this kind of scam to go on. And the backstory behind all of that, and also about Joseph Singh, the crime that he was in there for, his relationship with... um the woman that he eventually, you know, I don't want to give the story away because, <laughs> you know, it is, uh, it's, it's a pretty remarkable murder mystery in and of itself. Yeah. Um, so I think that that, it worked when I was doing it, it, it worked for me and, and, and made me enthused to, to want to continue writing it because it worked on the level of, I love baseball and I love that aspect of it, but it worked on the st- standpoint of, how these people came together to be better people, both on and off the ball field, and how the the game ex- the, the betting itself is exposed, and then what becomes of Singh, who's in there for a murder that he ultimately we do or do not know if he committed. Mm-hmm. You know what the you know it you know at the end of the book what yeah. really is has gone on, and I thought that that was pretty amazing too. And the fact that it's a true story makes it all that much more remarkable.
0: And you have the appeals from his family members writing to the governor to try to save him. And he was a a popular figure in the town, which, as you know, it is is surprising because it was such a, a strict place where people who committed these crimes were not really tolerated. So by the time the warden and governor decided, oh, we have to make a show of something, we have to show that we're not corrupt, that we will actually punish these prisoners... Did anyone actually want them to be punished anymore? Or was it just, hey, we have to go through with this to show that we are tough on crime. But in the town, there was quite a, an outpouring of support, it sounds like.
3: Yes, I believe that there was an outpouring. There was an outpouring of support in, in the town because people were getting were getting rich mm-hmm. off of this team. I see. So that was that was part of it. Singh was a hero because he was the most valuable player on that team. That was a big part of it. Uh, people, people were profiting from it, so no one wants to get rid of that gravy train. Of course, his family were interceding for him like crazy. Heartbreaking, heartbreaking. I mean, at one time, his mother sends in a picture of her with one of her grandchildren. I guess, and she's in black taffeta. I guess to show that she was a compassionate person and had gone out of her way to raise compassionate people. Mm -hmm. just anything that they could do. I mean, Singh had always been involved in petty crimes anyway. I don't mean to imply that he was pure as the driven snow. Indeed, none of those players were. But I think ultimately, these people were going to be killed for their crimes anyway. It's just the timing of it that I think people were objecting to. (laughs) Right. It it just was, it's it's an amazing tale. It's an amazing tale that's so hard to be able to say all the intricacies with it. And that's why I hope people get the book. It's called The Death Row Mm All-Stars. And I hope people get the book and read it and, and learn more about this amazing team and the players behind it. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I I hope so too. And I will link to it and tell people where they can get it. And can you explain a little more as far as we know about the, the level of play here? I mean, it's very difficult to say, you know, this is how good they were compared to the major leagues. They're playing against these local ragtag teams. But obviously, there are talented athletes out there who would not be found by a major league team. But if they had grown up somewhere else and had a different background, maybe they would have. Have been the the Ty Cobb or or something of that era. Well, other than Ty Cobb himself, I mean, it's hard to know how good these players were, but it it sounds as if some of them were pretty talented.
3: Well, I, I know a great deal of them, and that was something that I found when I was in the prison. A lot of postcards and a lot of they were huge fans of Honus Wagner. Uh-huh. He was on. Everybody wanted to play like Honus Wagner. So, I mean that. That was their, that was their standard. That was the bar that they set mm-hmm. to play like Wagner. And you're, you're right. It's very hard to say. And, and certainly you can't compare it with what goes on. What makes a good player today? It was 1911. Yeah. I think consistently hitting, which is what they did. They were consistent, consistently good at hitting and they had incredible pitchers. And that was something to really be focused on as well. I mean, they, they were a good all around team because they had to be <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> right. Uh you wanted to prolong your life as much as possible and then then sweet life for them was just coming alive on the on the ball field itself. I would love there's a, there's a story in the book about how they play a particular team at the prison and the the players were very concerned about putting together snacks and refreshments for the spectators who would be there so in one part of this yard is a place where you can go get lemonade I mean, it's just so preposterous
0: <laughs> right
3: <laughs> but they tried to make it uh, as much like a a ball club as they possibly could you're right i don't know how you would compare it to where they really were as good as Honus Wagner, you have n- you have no stats to really show that. Right, mm-hmm. but they were good enough to to play to win. People were getting rich off of them, so I suspect that they were pretty doggone good.
0: And I note that the original book, Playing for Time on the cover, said something about soon to be a motion picture. And you wrote the, the follow up, the Death Row All Stars with Howard Kazantian, who's a, a prominent producer. And it, it just seems hard to imagine that this is not a movie yet. I guess it, it probably doesn't quite have the Hollywood ending, but it definitely has movie like qualities. So what discussions have you had, may you have? Why have we not seen this on the big screen yet?
3: Well, it is now um, it is the the motion picture rights and everything has been optioned by Ginny Lou Tugan Productions. Ginny Lou Tugan and her folks did Free Willy. Movie. She was also involved in Lethal Weapon, mm-hmm. and it's in their hands now, and they've been making the rounds. Hollywood's, it's, you know, one time it, they're all excited about it, and the next time they say no one's interested in baseball. <laughs> uh, no one's interested in period baseball. But this isn't just a story of baseball. This is a story of these men, how they got to the prison, uh, the most valuable player. It's about the warden. It's about the prison system as a whole. So the book really has, and and the people that are um, the writers on this that are the same people that that wrote a television series called Numbers that Mm -hmm. was on CBS for a number of years. Mm -hmm. So uh, they're making the rounds. We'll see what happens. I hope that people would be interested in a baseball movie set in 1911. But right now, a lot of the people that, that run the industry are people that are the 30 somethings and, uh, don't know much about that era mm-hmm. and think that people aren't necessarily interested in that and, and are not altogether certain that anybody is interested in baseball, which as a baseball fan, I don't know how you can possibly say that. <laughs> <So> <laughs> yeah. I don't know what to say. And as somebody that's, <laughs> I have been a, a, you know, Kansas City Royals fan forever and ever and ever and huge fan of George Brett who wrote a piece for the book. Yeah. Which I was really pleased with. I mean, I just uh, that and and the fact that the book was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame a few years back. Mm. So those have been a real kick. And I just appreciated all of that. And I would hope that the Hollywood would see the power in this story and, and the possibilities in this story. It gets it gets almost there and then it falls through. So we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see.
0: Well, I hope it comes together. It 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 may just be a baseball story, but it is <laughs> quite an extraordinary one and uh, I think so too. Yeah, this was a a colorful period in in baseball. You know just everywhere I mean with gamblers and some of the the characters that were populating the game at that time at the major league level but this is a, a whole other level of colorful I suppose when you're talking about a a team of convicts so I don't know I, I I know Kevin Costner said he's looking for another baseball movie right so maybe he's a little old to take the field at this point but
3: well but he could certainly be a produ- he could certainly be a producer but I think that they have gone to to him with this particular project. And Uh, I don't know, he's a hard, he's a hard get, you know, I mean, he's a guy that can do whatever he wants to do now. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, people come to him. I mean, he, he, if he decides he wants to do it, I mean, it it would be, um, it would be a home run. Let's just say that. (laughs) Uh, And that would be great if he did, but uh, I, you know, I, all we can do is put it out there and I know that they're going to meetings with it. And I just heard from a gentleman in, england yesterday who does documentaries on sports who wants to do something about it so Mm -hmm. you never know where this is going to go but it doesn't take away from the fact that it is an incredible team and that the book the death row all-stars a story of baseball corruption and murder is uh is an enjoyable read i think
0: yeah. So last question, did anyone, not to, to spoil the ending, but did anyone escape their fate? Was there anyone from the team who went on to live a, a long life and, and survive past this point?
3: I believe George Sabin did. George mm-hmm. Sabin escaped. Not sure whatever happened to George Sabin, but I believe that the warden knew what happened to George Sabin uh-huh. and that he lived a life, a very long life after that. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that I don't think we'll ever know what happened to him, <laughs> right. but um, no, most of those, most of the, the gentlemen on the team did die,
0: mm-hmm.
3: um, starting with Singh. So, but Sabin's the only one I know that got away scot-free.
0: <laughs> okay. All right. Well, hopefully we will see this story on a big or small screen or possibly both sometime soon. But until then, you can read all about it in the book, The Death Row All-Stars. I will tell you where to find that. And you can find Chris's many other books at her website, chrisens.com. That's E-N-S-S. And she even has another baseball book in the pipeline one of these years. So we can look forward to that. And it has been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Chris.
3: Thank you very much. I appreciate your time.
0: All right, we will now take one more quick break, and we will travel both backward and forward in time to talk about the Southern California Vintage Baseball League. Don't
3: live in the past Don't hold on to something that's changing fast What we are is what we
4: are And what we wear is vintage clothes Vintage All
0: right, we are now joined by two members of the Southern California Vintage Baseball League. That is baseball with two words, because this is vintage baseball, and that's how they used to spell it. So we are joined first by Wes Abarca. He is the co-founder of the league, as well as its commissioner and the captain of the Crestline Highlanders. Hello, Wes. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. And we are also joined by longtime listener and Patreon supporter, Joe Billheimer, who is, I'm going to guess it's pronounced the behind, not the behind, which is the catcher for the Crestline Highlanders. Hi, Joe.
4: Good morning. Thanks for having us.
0: Yeah, so I read in the league bylaws that everyone is mandated to have a nickname and that you are not allowed (laughs) to give yourselves nicknames. So, Wes, do you have a nickname already?
2: You know what? They've been trying to give me a nickname, and it's just not sticking. Huh. Okay, <laughs> maybe can, we'll uh, come
0: up with one during this interview.
4: I can clarify. We're yeah. we're trying to get Hitch to stick because he's he's uh, not the fastest one in the group. So let's <laughs> <We'll> see. <laughs> okay,
0: Joe, you have a nickname.
4: I do. My nickname is the Ripper, and the Ripper. The uh, the origin story of that is kind of silly. Well, first of all. Um, I hit the ball pretty hard, which was cool to be recognized that way, but also the very first, uh, exhibition match I played, I borrowed somebody's uniform, uh, because I didn't have my own yet. I was testing it out still. And, you know, as the behind, I'm squatting back there behind the dish and, uh, the crotch of my pants blew out and I was just, you know, I ripped the seams. I had about a six or seven inch just hole in the middle of my pants. So they thought it was funny and therefore I am the ripper.
0: All right, that's a good nickname. They had better nicknames in those days, so you are you are true to form and wow, okay, so it is the behind. I apologize for for trying to spare you that <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Wes, uh, this is the inaugural season of the League. You've been playing exhibition games for about a year now, but you're about to begin your first official season. Give us the origin story of the League.
2: Yeah, so I can give you the long story or the short story. The really quick, I guess, I'll try to get quick about it, but um, I played in 2008 up in the Bay Area, they have a vintage baseball league there. It's called Bay Area Vintage Baseball League. And I, that's how I got introduced to, to the sport. And then, uh, I came back to LA, uh, had an idea of creating a league because there wasn't any in Southern California. And I had that idea probably in my back pocket about 10 years, just never moved forward with it. Then I, uh, came, a, I started playing, uh, softball up in the mountains where I moved and I noticed a lot of guys were, ex-baseball players, they missed the game, and um, I just said, maybe I can introduce them to this uh, vintage-style play, and I started showing them how to do it, and they wanted to create a team. Now, I had an idea to start a mountains vintage baseball league, like a local league, but then I came across uh, a league that was trying to get going in L.A. It was called the L.A. Vintage Baseball League. And when I realized that there was one team, they only had one established team, and they had. We're having a hard time trying to come up with more teams, and that's kind of the it's kind of what happened with uh, with my league as well. I was only able to create one team in my area, so I talked to the captain who is uh, from the Redondo Beach Wharf Rats, and that's the name of the team. And we I just said, hey man, let's uh, how about we just joined up together and we have two clubs, and maybe we'll go from there. And we'll just consider it a Southern California thing. And he was all for it, and so that's how the league got going.
1: So, how do you spread the word and generate enough interest in playing a the version of baseball, but by a the number of different rules and with different equipment? How do you how do you get people excited to to play a hundred thirty year old version of the game as opposed to playing something that's more contemporary?
2: Well, um, it definitely definitely has a lot of uh, history and roots to it, so. Uh, you could definitely pitch the idea of going back into history, baseball history. And so there's a lot of historian type people who like to get involved with that. Um, then you have the people who are into the vintage look, the actual look of the uniforms, the equipment. And then you got the baseball players like myself and probably Joe who we just want to play the game again. And, and it's actually a challenge because it's, uh, you're using different type of equipment, uh, heavier bats, smaller gloves uh lessy e- less protective equipment and uh it's just um uh, there's different people who are interested in different ways and and we've been promoting it just uh talking to people uh but also like getting enough folks to come out and actually have like an exhibition match which draws more interest to people who, who want to I want to give
0: it a try. So people are probably familiar with the Conan O'Brien video, which now <laughs> is a vintage video itself. It's 15 years old, but right. the league that he went and took footage of was using 1864 rules very early on. Your league is using a modified version of the 1886 Major League rule set or National League rule set. So Joe, I don't know if you can take this one. If if not, Wes, feel free to jump in. But why 1886? How did you choose? And uh, what unique demands does that place on players?
4: Well, I joined the team to harken back to your previous question, because Wes put some stuff out in the community. He's uh, done a great job of driving the awareness. I mean, I love baseball, so I was all, all for it. 1886 specifically, Wes, correct me if I'm wrong, but... You know, we, uh, we gotta go to work the next day. So there's at least a little bit of equipment that's used in the form of gloves. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, for, for myself, there's a chest protector, uh, there's a mask and there's a glove for behind the dish. So I'm at least a little bit protected as are the fielders. The glove that the fielders use, it's not much more than a, than a glorified gardening glove. You know, it's, it has a little bit of padding. Um, if you got, if anybody wants to check it out, you can go to the Vintage Baseball Factory, vbff.com, and it's the Foxy Irwin glove. Uh, that's the the standard that the fielders use. But I think it's just more for protection because uh, there's some equipment. That's why we stick to the 1886.
0: Uh huh. And for people who are not intimately familiar with 1886 baseball rules, we're talking about seven balls and three strikes, you have to call for higher low pitches and the pitcher has to deliver them there. There's no mound or rubber. So the front of the pitcher's box is 50 feet away from the plate. Foul hits, also known as foul balls are not counted as strikes. So this is very different brand of baseball. Wes, what would you say is the hardest thing to get used to or the most dramatic difference from modern baseball aside from the equipment?
2: There is a lot of different rules we do that like uh, besides the seven balls, there's a hidden ball trick. Uh, There's a quick pitch makes the game go a lot faster. Maybe major league baseball should adopt that again. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, there's just so many different rules that are similar, but they're not, there's not an info fly rule. So those are things you as a new player you need to get used to. We're still trained in the way it is now that if you come yeah. up against I it, can yeah. um
4: I can share a little bit of my experience with my first exhibition match. So I have played I played baseball for a very long time uh, exclusively as a catcher. So the biggest thing for me difference-wise was the the quick pitch. Mm-hmm. After my first inning, I stopped calling pitches. I told my my uh, my hurler, uh, that's the pitcher. I said, "Hey man, Throw what you want. Throw your breaking stuff. Throw your fastball. You know, just uh, hit your spot and I'll catch it. And that enabled him to quick pitch as he wanted to. So I just have to be ready. The hurler has basically the only way he could balk is if he fakes a pitch home. Anything else is not a balk. He can, he can be on the, he can be in the box ready to go. The first baseman could have the ball and that's the hidden ball trick he can, uh, as soon as he catches the throw back from me, he can you know do a mini quick crow hop and deliver it right back over the plate. So the batter can't step out. The batter just has to be ready. The only person who can call time is
2: the sir, uh, who is the umpire, or the captains of the teams. Correct. And, and then he, he was saying the box, yeah, In, in the, that reference to the, What it is, the pitcher's mound. There is no mound. We play on a flat ground. It's 50 feet from the middle of home plate uh, to the front of the box. Then you're talking about six feet deep box and then a four feet wide box. So it's like a rectangle that the pitcher needs to deliver. He has to finish and start in the box when he goes home, delivers home plate.
1: So, in the amount of time that you've been playing by these relatively unfamiliar rules, and you're probably still kind of learning how the game flows in and out, but have you? What are what are the main strategic differences that you you play with relative to like the the modern baseball that people would be more familiar with? That's a very good
4: question. I think the strategic differences would be the hurlers utilizing the quick pitch. That's probably something that is least implemented by the other teams. Uh, that I've noticed. We've had a few exhibition matches that I've par- partaken. They just don't really do it. And it could be to their benefit to utilize that. It takes a bit to get used to it, obviously. So what we've had to do is really strategically position our strongest defenders who have the best, the best hands. It's hard to catch these balls. A ground ball mm-hmm. coming at you, you know, there's, there's no wiggle room. You have to stick it. Otherwise you're just going to drop it. So fielding is, is, we'll call it fun. That's part of the reason I, uh, I'm i glad to still be the catcher, because I don't have to deal with that. Fly balls are uh, are interesting. They get caught surprisingly often. Ground balls are challenging. Thankfully, not a lot of the guys in the league are extremely fast, so there's still time to recover to make a play. Those are some of the key strategies that need to be implemented in
1: order to have the success. Are you are you, you shifting, are you shifting defenses, defenses, or is that, or not, is that appropriate not appropriate for 1886 <laughs> rules?
4: We're not, we're not, but we could. It depends. I have a buddy of mine on the Wharf rats, and he's uh, he's a slappy, real fast type. So we might shift everybody over to the left side for him. The, another thing that's interesting is that if you get hit by the pitch, it's just a ball. So I've threatened, "Hey man, if you want to walk, you're gonna have you're gonna have seven bruises." So we'll see. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and Wes, I, I'm curious about how widespread this is. I mean, you have a, a five-team league. All the teams are in Southern California. But yeah. as evidenced by the fact that you can purchase newly manufactured vintage equipment, obviously there is a demand for this. This is a, a nationwide pastime. So do you have any sense of how many you know fairly well-organized leagues there are around the country, how many people play vintage baseball?
2: Well, there's quite a few, um, especially in the East Coast. I know it's really big in the East Coast, especially the Civil War era ball, which is underhand, no gloves. In California, there is three 1886 vintage, uh, baseball leagues now. And there's also one starting in Central Valley, which is in Sacramento area, uh, which is starting the 1860s style as well, underhand, uh, no, no glove. But there is quite a few. Teams, I don't even, I can't can't even put a number to it, how many leagues there is in the East Coast. Um, I I constantly come up across them in on social media. I'm just like blown away how many uh, clubs there is and how long it's been going on in those areas.
1: How? I guess this would be a question for for both of you, but given that you uh, you're trying to create an entire experience here, how? How much have you tried to hew your in-game chatter to what you might perceive to be old-timey vernacular? Are you talking in modern English, or does this kind of go in with the nicknames?
2: <laughs> yeah, I've been trying to to educate <laughs> the fellas on, uh, on the language. I'm still trying to get used to it as well, but I, I, I do encourage them to use it, to use the old terminology. Maybe, a, for example, a ground ball that's uh, hit hard or on the ground. We call it a daisy cutter. Someone who's showing fierce play. Uh, we, we say that's nice ginger there. Maybe a fly ball. It's called a sky ball. The outfield area, we call it the garden. In some years, the shortstop's called the short field. The catcher is referred to uh, playing the behind position. That's the behind area. The pitcher, you know, the terminology is like the pitcher, the hurler or the feeder, depending on what um, era you're playing in. There's a lot of different uh, terminology. The, the fans are called the cranks. So I try to encourage the guys on my club and even the other captains on other clubs to get their uh, players, their ballists, to use that type of language and kind of stay away from modern terminology. And also, we we try not to do... Um, Fist pumps, uh, I mean, uh, chest pumps, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> slap, a slapping hands and whatever. You know, we try, what we try to do is, um, we, we, we try to keep it to handshakes or you can applaud for the other team when they make a great play or something like that. It goes back to the gentleman, uh, gentleman's play. Um, of the early 19th century baseball.
0: Yeah, you should all have to go on the DL with dysentery or or dropsy or something, <laughs> just to keep it really accurate. I saw that in the rules there is a it specifies that umpires may smoke cigars if they care <laughs> to. Do many of them take advantage of that?
2: Oh yeah, they they definitely love that idea. I think that's how we get our most of our sirs in, interested in. Uh, that they, they could smoke a cigar while they're, while they're calling the game and they kind of roll with an iron fist and no one's really allowed to, um no one's, actually no one's allowed to, um, disrespect them like you see baseball nowadays. It was a, it was an honor thing. Usually the, the only person that would be seen that could call a great game under the eyes of God would be a judge, a clergyman or undertaker. So you would trust those men and, um, they would come right after work dressed up in their, you know, in their top hat or, their derby cap or you know tie and coat and suit and they would just pull out their cigars and call the game so yeah they can smoke as as, as they please
1: (laughs) so given that foul hits are not Canada strikes it you know, you, you could see that there's the opportunity there for a little bit of strategic edge if you get really good at hitting the ball foul, maybe wearing out the pitcher. So, in your estimation, who would be the Takuya Nakashima of your own roster? Who has really just perfected the art of hitting the ball foul just over and over and over again?
4: I'll, I'll take that one, Wes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Takuya Nakashima ahead. is the Japanese professional baseball player that just hits everything foul and drives opposing pitchers nuts. So, <laughs> on our team, you know, I've had some long ABs, uh, where I, I'm a lefty batter or lefty striker, excuse me. And I've pulled five or six balls foul over the course of an at bat. And, uh, cause I, I, tend to turn on them and it drives me nuts cause I'm like, geez, I still have zero strikes on me. What's going on? Yeah, just as a, as a, a person who is familiar with uh, modern day baseball more so than vintage. But I've had some long ABs. I know a couple of our guys, Kentucky, our shortstop. He's, uh, he's kind of a slappy guy. He has the nickname Kentucky because he's from Kentucky and he sounds like he's from Kentucky. So he's, uh, he's kind of, he's kind of slappy and he can get. He can get in the pitcher's head uh, if he wants to. He's got very good back control.
0: So, Joe, tell me also about the pace of the game. We've talked about the quick pitching, which would speed things up. But on the other hand, you've got the seven balls and three strikes and foul balls not counting as strikes. And you'd think that would tend to slow things down. So I guess you guys play seven innings, right? But roughly how long would a full game take compared to a, a modern major league game?
4: Right. The seven inning games have, they're between two and a half and three hours. Uh-huh. For me, as the behind, the at bats can get long. My legs are not what they used to be when I was catching full time. So I get, I get tired back there and I'm like, golly, just swing the, you know, put the ball in play. Let me get a bit of a break because I have to be ready every time for that quick pitch just in case it's implemented. Pace of play is, is good unless you have a wild hurler who just can't find uh, the high zone or the low zone, then it just gets a bit a bit annoying. But we have uh, very good hurlers on our team. Um, our top hurler is named Ace. He's uh, he starts our games for us, goes uh, several innings, and then we bring in a couple other guys, either Sandlot or Pickle. They come in and they they close things out. So pace of plays good, uh, especially if you have a hurler who uh, who finds the zone.
2: Yeah, I think and I think as 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 we the more we play in the league the teams get more comfortable on how the game is played um the the games will will move a little quicker and maybe maybe even be less scoring with people getting used to defense
1: I understand you're you're not into this for for the money or for the fame, but still, you know you're playing you're playing at a ballpark and and what have, what have you noticed in terms of of local people coming out to to watch? What what are your spectator? What, what's your attendance look like? Because of course, anyone walking by would think, oh, this is like a curiosity. I should sit down and and watch this. Do yeah. they do they stick around?
0: How many cranks?
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: well, we. <laughs> Most games weren't, the exhibition matches that we were having at the beginning weren't really advertised very much. We were more just trying to get up out on the field and, uh, and play. And just trying to get the guys familiar with the rules. But we did have a Labor Day match against the Oakland Colonels. They're part of the Bay Area Vintage Baseball League. They've been around for about 15 years and, uh, got in contact with them. They were, they were looking to barnstorm. So they came, they came all the way to Southern California. We set up two matches on a Saturday and a Sunday. We put out, it was up in Crestline in the mountains. It's a small town community. So we put out information for everyone, you know, flyers or social media. We got some press involved and for both of those games, I believe we had roughly around four to five hundred people show up on on those days. So it was a, it was a good amount of people and uh, that came out and watched us.
0: So for both of you, I guess, do you enjoy this brand of baseball, independent of the historical reenactment element? as much as the modern rules, less than, more than? I mean, if you just had to choose, you're playing a pickup game with friends and you're not observing any of the period you know, language and and uniforms and all of that. I mean, how much of the enjoyment of it is the history aspect and how much of it is it's just as fun as playing regular baseball? I guess, Joe, you can start.
4: Yeah, well, if I were to just play a a pickup game with, with some guys, it would it would probably be regular baseball cuz that's what we're all familiar with. I've told several of my friends uh with whom I've I've grown up playing baseball about this thing and they are all extremely curious and want to they all want to see the glove, they all want to, you know, try catching a ground ball, try catching a fly ball. So there's that novelty aspect as far as, you know, what, what I'm I'm used to baseball, you know, mm-hmm. regular one word baseball. So that's probably what I would stick with. This is Extremely fun for a couple of reasons. One, I'm getting plugged into my community. I've been in Crestline for about a year and a half now. Uh, my family moved there, and it's really great to get to know the guys and their families. And I know that's uh, there are like Sunday leagues out there for regular baseball. This league, also, the time commitment isn't so great. We have our season, which stretches from February through September with playoffs in October. And it's usually one match per month, maybe two. With occasional practices. So the time commitment isn't overwhelming. That's a a great benefit of this league. Plus it's, it's just a heck of a lot of fun to challenge yourself with the equipment. You have the hurler who's very close, but they're not, they're not throwing gas because the rules dictate they are not allowed to have a really big leg kick. I think they can, they can just kind of slide step. And plus if you can imagine somebody quick pitching, they're not able to reset and put all their max effort behind it. So while the hurlers are close, they're not, uh, really exerting themselves fully every single time. I don't know. Those are some of the reasons I really enjoy vintage baseball. Um, but of course I'm used to modern day.
0: Yeah. You have anything to add Wes?
2: Well, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that I do not ever want to play modern baseball again. <laughs> 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 I love watching it. I love watching it. I understand it. I've been, you know, I've played it all my life, but ever since, uh, I got back into the vintage. I, I just, when I played in 2008 for one year in the Bay, it was just I fell in love with it, and uh, ever since then I've just been striving to get back into it. And now that I'm that we got something going here in Southern California, I'm never, never again gonna touch the baseball bat like I used to. I just love it so much. It's so challenging, and just the quirky rules and uh, the history behind it. I just, it's, I'm just all for it now.
1: So the last thing I I wanted to ask you, you referred to the regular season, then you have the playoffs, and you've also talked about how there are other teams, other leagues that play by 1886 rules, but there are also, you've brought up Silver War Leagues and leagues that play by 1864 rules. So can you envision, if maybe something already exists now, but can you envision some sort of national or regional tournament where maybe you or your team, your representative from your league ends up playing another team? In uh, in another league by some other year's rules, and then you kind of have a, a home and home kind of situation in the, in the championship series.
2: Yeah, we um, we've already been in discussion with the Central Valley of Vintage Baseball League in uh, in Sacramento. Uh, they play eighteen sixty four, I believe. Yeah, and uh, we've already discussed uh, meeting up with each other at some point, And I don't know about a championship, but more of an exhibition of showing uh, them teaching us and uh, us participating in and the old way in uh, Civil War times, and then uh, fast-forwarding it for, fast forwarding it for ne- another game and, uh, and showing how it, how it evolved to the 1886 overhand style with uh, some equipment.
0: All right. Well, if you want to find a vintage baseball league or team in your area, it looks like there's a, a Vintage Baseball Association That has a lot of them, so you can search. If you are in Southern California, you can go see Crestline play on, what, February 9th is your next game. Crestline is playing the Long Beach Oilers in Long Beach. So that's something to see. I will link to the rules of the league. I'll link to some photos and video so you can get an idea of what we're working with here. And uh, I wish I were closer so I could come see. But this sounds like a lot of fun. So thank you very much, Wes and Joe.
2: Thank you for having
4: us. I appreciate it. Yeah, Thank you, guys. We appreciate it a lot. And it's uh, it's great fun. If anybody's in the Southern California area, there are teams in Riverside, Redondo Beach, Long Beach, Palmdale, and Crestline. But we're looking to add clubs for the, the upcoming season uh, in 2020. So please get a hold of Wes if you have a desire to check it out.
1: All right. If you were serious about this, you wouldn't even use cars to get to the games. You'd have to take take horses horses or 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 trains. trains.
2: Yeah, you know, we do a a parade every year up here in Crestline. (laughs) Well, we just started it last year. We're doing it again. It's like a 4th of July parade. And, uh, we walked it last time, um, and we had an idea of getting an old vintage car, and we're like, wait a minute, we shouldn't be in a car, we should be in a horse. <laughs> yeah,
0: you really should not be doing a podcast interview, either. we, You should have insisted that we conduct this yeah, in person right? and it appear only in a newspaper. But thanks for making an exception. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for that.
0: Thank you both. All right, Bye. Okay, that will do it for today. Thanks to all our guests. Long episode. We don't always stick to the same schedule, but we do make up for it eventually. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com effectivelywild signing up to pledge some small monthly amount. The following five listeners have already done so. Nathan Valentine, Nathan Lewandowski, Josh Curran, Ken Hui, and Brandon Youngblood. Thanks to all of you. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Please keep your questions and comments for me and Jeff coming via email at podcast at or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance you can pre-order my book the mvp machine comes out this spring but it is available for pre-order now and we will of course cram a couple more episodes into this week so we be back to talk to you very soon